The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I chose tonight a topic that is quite well known in the Dharma, and that is uh, loving-kindness, the first of the four Brahma-viharas. And especially all of you who have had a lot of practice, it doesn't matter how many times we hear talks about metta or loving-kindness, as long as it comes from a place from... um, a lived experience, we can always learn something from the teacher. So, to me, loving-kindness has been a very important part of my practice, and I hope that through the talk you get something new. So, the first thing that I want to look into a little bit is the title, the Brahma-viharas. So if you think of Brahma, Brahma was the name of a Hindu god. So this predated the Buddha, the Hindu religion. And Vihara is a place we dwell in. Uh, That hopefully it's a place that we live in. Not that we go and visit, but we actually live in that place. It's a dwelling Now, for me, the interesting part about the Brahma part is that the word Brahman derives from Brahma. And Brahman, this word we find a lot in the discourses of the Buddha. Now, Brahman, you might know that this was the name of the highest caste in India. But what's interesting for us is that the Buddha takes this term of Brahman and does something really very radical for his time. He says a Brahman is not going to be the one who is born into a special family with a very pure lineage of seven generations, both sides of the parents, That's the traditional view. He says, no, that's not a Brahman. A Brahman, he says, or a noble one, he says, it it does not depend on birth, on skin color, kind of hair, ears, eyes, mouth, nose, brows, or ways of mating. How about that? What makes a Brahman, he says, and I love that, is the actions, your actions. That's what's going to make you a Brahman or a noble one. Every single action. And when we say actions, we also are, are thinking of thoughts. Thoughts is also a behavior. Thoughts also is part of our actions. So, To me, this is really very inspiring that the Buddha, in this particular discourse called Vasetta, he just turns this concept of Brahma upside down and does something very, very radical for his time. 
So what's really promising is that with this view, all of us, every single one of us, has the potential to become a noble one, a Brahmin. So we can say that the Brahma-viharas then are a dwelling of the noble ones. And each one of us, by living each of these four qualities, which are loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, just by living these qualities, we can become a Brahman or a noble one. So tonight I will just focus on the first one, loving-kindness, or in Pali is metta, M-E-T-T-A. So briefly expressed, metta is unconditional love. The closest that we can find unconditional love would be that of a mother or a father who just offers this care to a newborn, a child, without any putting any conditions. You know, the child, as it grows up, might behave terrible, and the mother or the father still, ideally, loves the child. So metta, this unconditional love, starts with us. And the idea is that we slowly open up this focus to include more and more sentient beings. It's interesting to to, uh, make the distinction between this unconditional love and romantic love. I will read you... um, a quote from Sharon Salzberg, a teacher who's written a lot about loving kindness. She says, In our culture, when we talk about love, we usually mean either passion or sentimentality. It is crucial to distinguish metta from both of these states. Passion is enmeshed with feelings of desire, of wanting, or of owning and possessing. Passion gets entangled with needing things to be a certain way, with having our expectations met. The expectation of exchange that underlies most passion is both conditional and ultimately defeating. I will love you as long as you behave in the following 15 ways, or as long as you love me in return at least as much as I love you. So it is not coincidence that the word passion derives from the Latin word suffering. Wanting an expectation inevitably entails suffering. So this definitely contrasts strongly with what we hear and read and hear in songs in our world, in our Western world, in you know, movies, romantic movies. So Sharon talks about metta being like water that is being poured from one vessel to another without any obstruction. 
Metta flows freely, taking the shape of each situation without changing its essence. So loving kindness, you can see, sets a very high bar for all of us. But the instructions I find are very um, gradual. You know, when we are given the instructions for metta meditation, we begin, if it's easy, with ourselves. And if it's not, then the teacher will say, well, maybe think of a pet that you really love and you don't have a complicated relation with your pet, most likely. Then you start offering these phrases of loving kindness to your pet, or wherever it's easy, wherever it inspires you. And hopefully it's yourself, because that's essential. At some point, we really have to begin here with ourselves. So there is an interesting way of uh, getting to know the Brahma-viharas, this is done often in the way that the Buddha teaches. If, if he wants to teach you a concept, he says, get clear of what it's not or what it's similar to, but don't confuse it. So for the Brahma-viharas, the way he does it is he says, okay, let's take loving kindness. What would be its far enemy, i.e. the opposite? Or well, it would be hatred, right? So very easily distinguishable. And so then he said, okay, so that's the opposite you know, now what's not loving kindness? Now what would be the near enemy? And this concept of the near enemy is going to be something that it's similar than the quality so that you could confuse it. So that if you're not really being mindful, you would think that you are practicing loving kindness, but in reality you aren't. So what would be the near enemy? It would be, for example, loving somebody with an ulterior motive. That's not metta. Or sentimentality. Sentimentality is is an interesting one to think about. You know, really, what is sentimentality? And here again, Sharon gives us a very interesting image. She says, you know, sentimentality is looking at the world like through a lens that has some Vaseline on it and the edges of everything is kind of fudged a little bit. You don't really see the rough edges of anything. You don't want to look at anything that's painful, that's not nice, because you're not capable of, you're afraid of. That's where we get to sentimentality. This inability to be with the world just as it is. So when we are unable to be with the world just as it is, that there's fear, right? We don't want to look at things that are not beautiful, that are not pleasant. And there's a nice legend story connected to fear and metta in the discourses. The Buddha taught metta as an antidote to fear. 
And the story goes that there were a group of monks who the Buddha sent to practice meditation in the forest. You know, he would usually do that as the forest being the ideal place to go meditate. And the legend goes that the monks were sitting there and it got got dark. And as it got towards midnight, the tree spirit started to resent the, the presence of the monks. So they started to... Uh, make all these horrible noises of shrieks and the monks got totally scared and ran back away from the woods to the Buddha and said, "Don't, please don't send us back to the woods. You know, they're, they're, they're tree spirits and it was terribly frightful. And the Buddha said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm going to give you precisely what you need to be able to deal with the fear. And this is to be said that is the beginning or the one the first probably the first teaching of metta meditation so he teaches the monks the phrases and then he tells them not only to to say the phrases but also to really embody these phrases so the story goes that it worked so well that the spirits felt this sense of loving kindness around that they decided they wanted to support the the monks. And of course it has a happy ending. So I'd like to think that metta or loving kindness is as much a concept as it is something that it's felt in the body. So, for me, the way that I would describe the felt sense of metta in the body is, first of all, softness, rootedness, openness, fluidity, flexibility, and and grace, a certain grace that goes with it. So in this felt sense, I find is essential in even in the most insignificant uh, actions. For example, when we're meditating, pay attention how you adjust your posture. It's very important how we adjust our posture. You know, sometimes we're sitting and we start to get drowsy and we just kind of start leaning forward. And often what we do is we just jerk ourselves back. And it, it's, not, it's not terrible, but look what it does to your body and to your mind. So really embodying metta would just be very gently. You just take your body and almost somebody looking could not really tell that you've made an adjustment. So just very gently bring it back. You do the same thing with the mind. So when the mind goes, you bring it back very gently, which implies that you're not going to judge yourself, that you're not going to get frustrated, oh, there I go again. But it's like, okay, my dear, come back, come back. So this brings us to take a look at where is the connection between metta, 
and mindfulness. Is there a connection? Now think about it for a little while. Metta and mindfulness. Early on when we begin to learn about mindfulness, we learn that the quality of the attention is essential, right? So when we were little and we were asked to pay attention to something, the teacher didn't care if you were sitting there in a knot. As long as she had your attention, he or she was happy. But with mindfulness, we are asked to pay attention to the quality of the of the uh, attention that we're bringing to ourselves. So it's a, ve- it's a very soft, gentle attention. It's kind of like the quality of the touch of a silk handkerchief on your skin. That gentle. So if, for example, you bring the attention to your breath, I don't know if it's happened to any of you, that you bring the attention to your breath and you feel that your breath gets a little more tense. Has anybody had that? It's common. So, So that means it's too much. Back off a little bit. You know, the attention, it's interesting, but the, our attention can be felt in many different ways. So learn to, to do kind of like a zooming in and zooming out with your attention. Practice, notice really what's the difference, how, it, how the sensations change, how the, the mind states change as you make this attention more focused and less focused. One of the um, definitions that I <clears throat> like most of love is careful attention. This is a simple, non-sentimental definition of love. Careful attention. So think about when you, of, of any being, a pet or a child or a parent or a friend, that you really love, you immediately give a very special, careful attention to this person. And that's really what, where the connection is between mindfulness and metta. It's that very careful attention. We know that if we judge ourselves when we get distracted, we're just going to get discouraged and we're just not going to want to meditate anymore. But if we continue bringing ourselves back to the present in a very gentle way, then we get encouraged. And then eventually we'll get through, after practicing years, to places, especially during retreats, where we can practice mindfulness continuously. So now let's ask another question. We talked about what's the connection between mindfulness and metta. Now the next question is, what's the connection between metta and concentration? There is a very common idea that metta is a kind of a soft, second-rate quality. 
in comparison to the hardcore quality of concentration. Concentration often in this practice is associated with achievement and the ego. Personalities who are real achievers go for the concentration. Those, those of you who are, you know who I'm talking about. But what happened is that often people struggle to get concentrated by striving and over-efforting, which creates tension. So it is a surprise for many of us to discover that metta is a very common doorway to concentration. Raise your hand, anybody who has found that doorway. Yay, some of you. It's a, it's a wonderful discovery. I myself didn't, didn't really know for a while how powerful a door is metta for concentration. Many of us in the Western world have this idea of concentration, of something, you know, we furrow our brow and it's like, very serious and get down to it, bog down. We lean forward. And that's not the way to get to deep states of concentration. Deep states of concentrations are all about opening up, getting settled. So when metta is present, the whole body is soft, open, and tranquil. And those are the conditions that lead us to concentration. Those are the requisites that take us to concentration. Now, another very important aspect is when we are imbued by the state of metta, here's another wonderful, wonderful perk, there is an absence of the hindrances And for those of you who don't remember the hindrances, the hindrances are these five states that get in our way. They're obstacles to our meditation. And what are they? Sensual desires. We're sitting here and we're thinking, oh, I want to have, when I get home, I'm going to make myself a little hot chocolate and I'm going to have cookies. Okay, that's sensual desire. With any of the senses, you're always wanting something. We're sitting there and we're kind of fantasizing those sensual desire. And then we want the, the next one is aversion. I don't want something. You're, you know, it's like this, this, the, the, the meditation hall is too cold and the lights are really ugly. Why don't they change those light fixtures? Aren't they tacky? Or whatever it is, that's aversion. Okay? And then the next one is sloth and torpor. We're sitting there. We can hardly keep our eyes. Well, we're eyes, our eyes are closed. But let's say we can hardly keep our state. In this case, the expression didn't work. But you know, you know where, how it feels when we just can't keep ourselves awake and we're just kind of melting into the cushion or the chair. Sloth and torpor, another of the hindrance. 
And then the opposite of that is restlessness and worry. That's super common. You know, we're coming from a busy day and we're still kind of like this and we're thinking about work and, oh my gosh, and tomorrow I'm not going to finish what I just left unfinished today and blah, blah, blah. So it's restlessness and worry. And the last one is doubt. So those five hindrances, really important to keep in mind. It's what gets in the way all the, often in our meditation But the beautiful thing is that when we are truly imbued by loving kindness, these hindrances kind of recede to the background. Being imbued by loving kindness is so pleasant. You don't want to harm any being when you are in that state, and you know that the hindrances don't feel good. So if you see them arising... You can just kind of let them go or make whatever adjustment that you need. You just start to feel a little drowsy and you breathe with your inhalation longer to get your energy back. So it's a wonderful way of, of keeping the hindrances at bay. And when the hindrances are absent, that's an essential requisite for concentration. In fact, in deep concentration, the hindrances are absent. So there is again our connection between metta now and concentration. We also say that metta is a way of purifying the mind. And you can see that as I spoke about how with the hindrances You want to keep them at bay, right? One way that I have found extremely inspiring and helpful to understand metta or loving kindness is by getting to know somebody who really embodies this quality. I hope that each one of you knows somebody that say, oh yeah, this person really, to me, embodies what I'm hearing here about metta. So I had the good fortune to know for eight years a woman who for me embodied metta. And I wanted to speak about her tonight because she died last month. And I was pretty saddened, but I'm very happy that I had her friendship for eight years. I often think of Jane as my meta teacher. I met her when she was 90 years old. So various conditions came together that I was fortunate enough to spend regular time with Jane. And very soon it became clear to me that being with her made it very easy for me to tap into this quality of metta. She just radiated this beautiful quality.
one aspect that I learned by being with her is that you can't really be experiencing metta when you're in a hurry. And Jane was never in a hurry. This is one of the gifts of getting older. So when I came to be with Jane, I felt like time stopped. And we were just there, together. I took a lot of joy in thinking of activities that we could do together to keep her mind in good shape as she was aging. And she loved meditation. So we would always start by meditating a little bit. And then she enjoyed listening to Dharma books. So I just was in heaven. I could read to her Dharma books and then we would discuss We would go for walks. She would use her walker. And perhaps one of the most uh, touching memories that I have of her that, that has all the quality of metta was she loved music, and so do I. And she loved Bach, and so do I. And so I would put some Bach, some very slow movements, and we would dance together. But to dance with somebody who's 90-some-year-old is kind of different. She would remain on her chair, and I would give her my arms, and the dance consisted just in moving our hands and our arms together. And that quality of softness, of fluidity, of flexibility, of grace was all there. Really, a couple of times, it's so simple, but yet a couple of times I would get tears in my eyes just from the experience, that connection. You know, part of, part of metta implies feeling the interconnection of beings. Very important of metta. In our society, I would say one of the saddest uh, ills that we suffer is loneliness, right? There's so many people who feel lonely. And when we begin to practice metta, we begin to feel that we are so connected. I never thought that I was going to feel such connection with a woman who was 90-some years old. But it was so touching to feel this interconnection, just like the boundaries melted away in our sharing of these very simple activities. So one time I accompanied Jane to a meeting of seniors. And they were asked one question. What is the hardest aspect for you of aging? And they went in a circle, and each one of the seniors was saying, what was the hardest thing? And when it got to Jane, I'll never forget her answer, what she said. She said, the hardest thing for me is the, devast- the devastation of the body. She had been a, an avid tennis player. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is because although she knew and felt the devastation... It was never felt. She never expressed this bitterness or complained. 
she felt it, and yet there was always this grace about her of just acceptance. Acceptance of wherever she was in this process. When we are living from this place of metta, it radiates out. This is part of what it says in the in the discourse in the sutta in the metta sutta is that we radiate that loving kindness around us, and I saw that with Jane too. There was one time, um, there was one woman in the house where she lived. You know, it's just for. Uh, a house for old people. And this woman, unlike Jane, had a very hard time as an elderly. She was very anxious and she would pace up and down and up and down and up and down and was very, very kind of nervous all the time and anxious. And one time I arrived to visit Jane and I found Jane sitting on the couch holding the hand of this woman. And for the first time, I saw this woman tranquil. And they, were, they weren't talking. They were just sitting there peacefully holding each other's hands. In the teachings, we are given a list of the benefits when we practice and really are imbued with metta. And I'll read you some of them. It says that when we are imbued with metta, when we embody metta, we fall asleep content. We wake up content. We don't have nightmares. We are loved by others. We are loved by animals. Saying the phrase, oh, yes, and this, but, but I wanted to tell you as a little, um, I'll make a little parenthesis. We are loved by animals. Joseph Goldstein, most of you know who he is, a teacher in this tradition, tells the story of walking in Massachusetts in a country road and seeing a dog that was coming towards him and was barking and looked a little fierce. And so Joseph said, Ah, Meta. And he goes, May you be well. May you be happy. May you be... (laughs) And he says, And guess what? The dog came towards me and bit me. <laughs> and so, you know, with, with, with Joseph's wonderful humility, he says, I learned something. So you can say the phrases very well, but if you are still contracted and fearful, it's not going to work. <laughs> so remember, it's about saying the phrases, but also watch what the body is doing. If the body is contracted, then that means... We haven't quite internalized the phrases yet. So going on with the list. So we said we are loved by animals. And our, um, our minds settle quickly and get concentrated. This one is surpri- surprising. Our complexion is clear. And then one dies with tranquility with a mind free of confusion. So going back to Jane, in these eight years that I knew her, I, it, 
the devastation from the body went then to the devastation of the mind. And very soon, she couldn't find the right words when we were speaking. That was a a very big change in our exchange. She just couldn't find the words. And then she completely started to confuse the words so that when she spoke, I couldn't understand a thing. But there was already such connection between the two of us that we had conversations. I somehow, by the tone of her voice, or one word here, one thread there, I would respond to her. And I could tell that it gave her so much joy that she was having a conversation with somebody. So... When we think of metta, what unites all of us is the desire to be happy. We all want to be happy. And we yearn to feel the connection to ourselves and to the other. So this, this beautiful practice of the Brahma Vihara allows us first to connect to ourselves and once we connect to ourselves, loneliness begins to disappear because we are able to connect with others. So last year, um, in the fall, I went to the three-month retreat at IMS. At this point, Jane was 97, and when I said goodbye, I was a little bit afraid I was not going to see her again. And of course, during the three-month retreat, I thought of her a lot. I remember seeing one sunset, those beautiful sunsets in the fall in Massachusetts. It was this gradual coming down with the sun and the light very gradually disappearing And there was this deep sense of wishing, oh, may Jane die in that very, very gentle, peaceful way like the sunset. When I got back, Jane was still alive, but with her strength very, very, very diminished. Now she didn't get up from bed, and she couldn't speak anymore, and she was almost not eating anymore. So I knew that this was our time to begin to to say goodbye. So I got to see what I saw in that sunset in Massachusetts. Jane was like a candle that very gradually burned down, very gently and very tranquil. And one of the last times that I saw her, I actually saw her the morning of the day that she died, but at that point she couldn't speak at all anymore. She was too weak. But two times before, she was able to speak. And what was really astonishing was that, remember that she couldn't make sense anymore. But the the last words to me, she looked at me clearly into my eyes and her last three words to me were, I love you. So 
this is what I wish for all of us, that no matter how difficult it is that, that we go through illness or whatever hardships, that that's still available to us. So let's sit for a moment. Just letting the words settle. You can take a moment also to just open up and with curiosity notice how do you relate to this topic of metta or loving kindness. And it's okay if you still don't quite relate to it. And then I invite you to consider from whatever way you understood metta tonight. How would it express in your body? What would be the felt sense? Can you imagine feeling metta and what it would be like in your body. And how would it be like to go about doing your daily chores, your daily job, just as efficiently, but embodying metta? And lastly, how would it be offering metta and opening up to metta when you've made a mistake?
when you've done something that you know wasn't right. And to close this evening, take a moment and see if there's any comment or question that you would like to share to make, to have the sense of completion. So if there's any comment, question. <clears throat> very good. Well, go home and have a very lovely, peaceful evening and sleep content, wake up content, and no nightmares. Have a good evening. <laughs> Thank you.